The rest of us are going to be continuing in the great escape. We are in message number 43. Praise the Lord. We are getting there. We're going to be in Exodus chapter number 22 today. Last week in our message judged by the law from Exodus 21, we moved into the functional application of the law, which was given to Moses by God at Mount Sinai. As we saw, the Lord gave uh, a list of statutes to direct the judges who had been selected out of the people to guide them in their duties. We looked at the areas of servitude. We looked at the areas of capital punishment, and we also looked at personal responsibility. Through these areas, we saw not only the loving character of God displayed, but we also saw what God's expectations for humanity were at the same time. So this week, we're going to be going into more specific statutes of the law. Okay, we're going to be these statutes are going to be about civil civil application. Uh, this is about bringing order to a disorderly culture. Remember, the Hebrew people have come out of a, an Egyptian culture. They've not ever really had traditional laws. The ones they had were very, very distorted. They were pagan. So God's trying to reform and refocus these people. You're going to notice that this portion of Scripture is going to be about assigning liability and about making restitution for loss. So as we work our way through this, I'm going to challenge you guys to look at the same laws and see if we end up at this, where, I, where my, my deduction and where I think we end up and where we, you end up. Let's see, hopefully we'll match up at the same place. You'll see what I see. But the message this morning is called The Heart of Restoration. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to, uh, to share the word of God. Lord, thank you for every scripture. Yet every single specific one has a purpose in our lives. And God, I pray that you help us to have ears to hear, Lord, that we might receive what you have for us. And Lord, help us not only hear it, but Lord, help it to soak into our lives, help it to become a part of who we are and help it to make change in us. The scripture's for correction, it's for reproof, it's for exhortation. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear what you have for us and Lord, help us to apply it that we might be a little bit more like you by the end of the day. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time. I pray, God, that you'll remove the human element for this message you have spoken to me. I'd ask God now that you'd speak through me in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter number 22. We're gonna go all 31 verses today. So a so man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five, five ox and if you, and if it, for a four sheep for a sheep. So if let's say you steal somebody's ox, you're going to have to give back five oxen for that one loss. If you steal their sheep, guess what? You're going to have to pay back six. You have to pay back four sheep for them. Understand here, God's desire is always restoration. That's what he's looking for in this situation. We also see here that the restoration is going to be greater than the loss, okay? So what was lost is going to be repaid in a greater format. And these precepts we'll see, uh, we will see directed towards the material world of the Israelites and their possessions, the desire of restitution, which is integral. This is an integral part of God's character. We're going to see this throughout human history. Everything we look at when we look at the Bible, we're going to see again and again and again that thread of restitution, restoration God's trying to work. From Genesis to Revelation, we can see the Lord working in, in and through the lives of people to restore them unto himself. And in doing so, then putting them in a situation, giving humanity a chance to actually do what it was designed to do, which was to bring worship and glory to God's name, right? In the end, that's why we've been given life, for selfish self-gain. We're not here for what it is we can get out of life. We are here so that our life can be a love letter back to God of the good things that he's done for us. How many of us know that God has blessed you in your life? Amen. Yeah, right? And what happens many times, we live in a way grateful. And God's saying, look, you know what? This is a matter of you recognizing who I am. And God gives us parameters to kind of help us to be guided back towards godly living, right? Because our nature 
is to do wrong. And we've got a rebellious Israelite people that have been living rebelliously against God. And God's now trying to put some of these parameters in their life to help them to do the right things. Verse number two says this, if a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. Let's say, now remember these people are in tents, right? That's where they're staying in. This is saying in the middle of the night, if all of a sudden you hear somebody shredding your tent, and you jump up in the middle of the night and you smack him with a rock, and he dies, well, guess what? You have no idea what's going on. You can't see. You have, and what it's saying is that, look, there's, there's no restitution there. there, you're, there you're, not, you're not culpable if you do that because you have no way for you to defend yourself or know what's coming up. But verse number three says this, if the sun be risen upon him, if it's daytime and he's breaking in and you decide to kill him, well, there's a problem, okay? If you do that, it says, and it says, there shall be bloodshed for him. You're going to have to pay for that. And it says here, um, for if he should make full restitution, so for he should make full restitution, he should pay you back whatever you lost, whatever he stole from you once he's caught. But if he has nothing to pay you back, that's what it says here, then he shall be sold for his theft. When we talked about before, people going into slavery or going into servitude, they did it to pay off a debt. His debt was what he had stolen, and he would go into service, and you would receive the money for his service. Verse 4, if the theft be certainly, certainly found in his hand alive, so he's stealing the ox, he's walking out, and you're like, hey! And he's like, oh! Right? You catch him. Mid-ox stealing. Or ass stealing. Or sheep stealing. Or whatever he's got. Guess what he's got to do? Not only has he got to turn around and take the ox back, but he's got to go get you another ox. He's got to pay back double of what it was that he sold, right? We see these, uh, as we discussed last week, these laws showcase the fact that God is just and God is fair. And guess what? He expects the same of his creation. He wants us to be just and fair. We also see God's heart here for the victim, right? It's not about the one who's, to who's doing the crime. It's about the one who is victimized by the crime. In our society today, that has been completely flip-flopped. There's completely distorted and twisted. I have a story I'm going to share with you. This is from Pennsylvania. A guy by the name of Terrence Dixon broke into the home of somebody who was on vacation. Okay? They were on a week-long or two-week vacation. He broke into their house. He burglarizes their home. He leaves by way of the garage. That's his plan. And he goes out. And as he goes out, he shuts the door behind him. Well, guess what? The garage door is broken. And guess what? The door that he came out locked behind him and he's trapped in the garage. And for eight days, he lives off of dry dog food and Pepsi. <laughs> That's what he lives off of. After eight days, he finally finds his way out of there and he escapes. He comes back and files a lawsuit against the homeowners for his suffering and was awarded $500,000 for his suffering. Isn't that amazing? A self-inflicted, he did everything himself, yet he was rewarded and the fact that our system is completely backwards. If we do things the way of the world, it's always going to be contrary to God's plan, the way that God does things. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8 says this, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. Notice that word death. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. So the mind that's always living in the flesh, guess what? It is going to be an opposite. That enmity means a direct, direct opposition against God. For it, is not, uh, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. These are not godly people. So then they, are, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That's true of a lost person. They cannot please God. But guess what? It's also true of us. As a Christian, we can be carnally minded. I can do things in my flesh for my own self gratification. And in doing so, I cannot please God in that instance. It's, it's, it's so important because understand the devil is going to constantly put temptations before us. If it's a reaction in anger 
to a person that you should give forgiveness to, but yet you carry around bitterness in your heart. That's to be carnally minded. And it says that a carnally minded person cannot please God because we are living in opposition to him. God says we're to forgive, we're to love, right? And if you do have bitterness in your heart or you have strife in your heart, man, I'll tell you what, bitterness will destroy you. The Bible calls it a root of bitterness because guess what? It grows into your life. And until you root that thing up, man, you got to tear it out of the ground. You don't snip off a weed at the ground level. I'm not a gardener, but I know that's not good, right? They come back. You just rip it off at the surface. What do you have to do? Work it and get that root and get the root out. Because otherwise, guess what it does? It expands. And that root of bitterness, guess what? Not only will it affect the relationship with the person that you have issues with, it'll start to affect the people in your life. You become a bitter person because you can't let this thing go. So when you forgive, guess what it does? It takes that weight off of you. That wasn't part of the message, but we'll just throw that in. Anyway, we will, the concept here is the fact that God has put these laws in place to really help the people to understand who it is they are to be. Um, now, let's look at this. Who remembers Zacchaeus? Who remembers the story of Zacchaeus? Little Zacchaeus, right? Little squat guy, right? Can't see, looking to the crowd, climbs a tree. Hey, there's Jesus, right? And what happens is Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus has a life-changing experience with Jesus. And what is really cool about this is we're going to get to see the heart of Zacchaeus as a proof of his salvation. Check this out in Luke verses 19, chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. He says, I'm going to take half of all of my possessions and I'm going to give them to feed the poor. And if I've done anybody wrong, not only am I going to pay back what I owe them, I'm going to give them four times what I took from them. And Jesus said, this day is salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So not only does Zacchaeus have a change of heart and a change of mind, but he becomes this honest man. And now what happens is he actually goes back to the law and he looks at the law and he says, you know what I need to do? I need to make restitution for my theft. Zacchaeus has a new heart, a godly heart, right? And what does it show us? It displays God's heart, a, God, a heart of restoration. Verse 5, if a man shall cause a field or a vineyard to be eaten and shall put in his beast and shall feed in another man's field of the best of his own field and of the best of his own vineyard, shall he make restitution. So you have a goat, you bring it over to my house and you let it into my yard. And he's eating all my stuff, right? And I come out and I catch you. And I'm like, dude, what's up? Well, the law says that I'm going to be able to take him back to the very best land that you have and let my animals feed on the very best that you have, right? It's about doing what's fair. And again, we see that this advantage here is the fact that it's always looking at what's going on in the victim. If fire break out and catch in thorns so that the stacks of corn or the standing corn or the field be consumed therewith, he that kindleth the fire shall surely make restitution. You're making a fire, whether or not it's on purpose or not, and you end up burning up my property, guess what? You're liable. You have to make things right. Verse 7, if a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep, so you're lending somebody to, to, to keep something for you, he says, and it be stolen out of the man's house, if the thief be found, let him pay double, right? I take my truck to your house. And I'm like, dude, will you watch my house, watch my truck for me? You're like, yeah, no problem. And all of a sudden, my truck gets gone. Well, guess what? If they catch the thief, He's got to give me back my truck, and I get another truck on top of that. That's a pretty sweet deal. I like that. I think we should incorporate that law for sure. Leave the keys in my ignition. <laughs> it says, but if the thief be not found, so they don't find the thief, and the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges, so you were supposed to watch my truck, right? And now my truck is gone, and we don't know what happened. 
It says here, um, it says, whether, it be, uh, whether he have put his hand, so he's supposed to go before the judges to see whether he have put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. So what's happening, you're not going to have to go before the judges, and they're going to go, look, you know what, we're going to do a little investigating to see, like, if you stole the truck yourself, right? And they're going to look into it, and the judges will decide what's the, what the result is. For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, or for ass, or for sheep, or for raiment, or any manner of lost thing, which cannot, which, is, which another challengeth to be his, and cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double. It says, look, so now we have a land dispute, right? I'm going, look, this is my land. And you go, no, it's my land. And I'm like, well, no, 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 this is my land. And we're arguing back and forth, and we cannot come to any kind of restitution. We go before the judges, and the judge goes, okay, let's take a look at this. And he says, just so you know, whenever we decide whose land this is, the one who loses, you're going to have to pay back double. Payback double. Imagine if that was instituted in our laws today, right? I think there'd be a lot less claims traditionally. You're like, people can argue. You can argue about who owns the house, but just so you know, if you lose, you're going to have to buy them another house on top of the house you got. And you're like, yeah, right? So I think people would re reevaluate a little bit. That's a pretty cool law. Um, so now we're going to look at this as trusting other people's, trusting uh, someone to watch our property for us. Verse number 10. If a man deliver unto his neighbor an ass, or an ox, or a sheep, or any beast, to keep it, and it die, or be hurt, or, driv or driven away, it becomes lost, and no man seeing it just disappears. There's a mystery, right? Nobody knows what happens. Verse 11, then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both. Okay? He says, and he that hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. He's saying, look, I had nothing to do with it. I, I don't know what happened. You brought it to my house, and it's just gone. I have no idea what happened. It's a mystery, right? It says, the owner of it shall accept thereof, and he shall not make it good. There's no restitution. He's not going to be forced to make it good if it gets gone, and there's no way of knowing what happened. It's a mystery. They're going to hold him responsible. But as Christians, as Christians, if you are trusted with someone else's property, even though there may not be a legal binding reason for you to be accountable for it, shouldn't we? Yeah. 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 You leave your, your dog at my house, and he just disappears, and I don't know what's going on. I'm telling you what, I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to look, dude, i got to find you a puppy or something, right? we got to have some kind of sense of responsibility. God's not going to maybe hold it to us there, but as Christians, we should always have that mindset. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says this, But whoso hath this world's good, says, look, you've been more than provided for, and seeth his brother have need. Man, their dog's gone. I was watching it. And shutteth up his bowels of compassion. How can I not have, feel bad from him? How dwelleth the love of God in him? How am I a Christian if I can see what's going on and not take full take responsibility for it and make it right, whether or not I'm legally bound to or not? He says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Be real. Take, take, take ownership of what you've done, but make things right. That's ultimately what God's trying to share with us. Make things right. Verse 12, and if it be stolen from him, he shall make restitution unto the owner. So let's say, again, I've got your ox, I've got your sheep, he's in the backyard, and I'm just not even worried about it, I don't pay attention, and then because of my neglect, that animal gets gone. Well, guess what? I'm going to have to make that thing right, right? If it be torn in pieces, then let him bring it, to, to witness, bring it for witness that he shall not make good that which was torn. So you leave your sheep at my house, and it gets attacked by a wolf and torn into a bunch of pieces, and I bring back a foot and an ear, and I'm like, look, uh, it got shredded. The judges are like, all right, that's not your fault. You can't control the wild beast. So I use that as my testimony of what's going on. Now we move into moral and ceremonial laws. Verse 16, it says, And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely en shall endow her to be his wife. So a man has a, an inappropriate affair with a woman. Well, guess what? He is bound to. He's got to go back and say, look, you know what? I'm going to marry her. I'm going to make this thing right. It's bound by the law. But look at this next part. If her father utterly refused to give her, 
He goes, look, you're not good enough for my daughter. He shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. That was like advance alimony. I'm talking this is a large sum of money. He doesn't get the woman, but he gets to pay all the money. I think that would maybe change a little bit of uh, premarital sex if people realize, look, you're going to have to pay like she's your wife, but you're not going to end up with the wife, right? These, these things are designed to help control the desires of this unruly people, right? It's about trying to get them under control. It says in verse number 18, Thou shalt not such suffer a witch to live, witches were too dangerous. The reason why this warning is important because he's talking about those that are demonically controlled. These folks are not only a physical threat in the fact of what they could do physically, but they're also a spiritual threat to the church and to the body. And what's interesting is that verse has been twisted and used as a justification throughout American history as well as in Europe. They had witch hunts, right? They used to say, well, let's see if she floats, and all these different tests, right? They would do all these things. It's the distortion of that very scripture that they built all of that stuff upon. And innocent people were killed all over the place. And the thing was amazing. is It was completely designed. It was religious manipulation and fear-mongering to control the people, and it's taking the scriptures and twisting it out of its proper use. The improper use of, of scripture is something that's very, very important to God. Notice this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, talking about misappropriation of the word and also preaching false, false things. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, meaning they make themselves look like godly people. There are people you watch on TV and you go, man, you know what? He seems godly. But listen, follow if what they're talking about is scriptural. Follow if what they're doing is actually saying, because they can say the right things and play the part, but there are a lot of people out there that portray themselves to be something that they are not. They are false apostles. And he says, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his, notice the word it uses here, if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. They look righteous. You look into their life and you go, man, he's a good guy. He's honest. He's this. He's that. He's other. You know, you've got Mormons out there. If you want a good neighbor, get a Mormon, man. They are fantastic neighbors. They will not steal from you. They are good people. But guess what? Everything they preach is heresy. It is absolute heresy. But they're good moral people. And you look at them and go, boy, they seem righteous. Irrelevant. Because guess what? There is none righteous. No, not one. It's the doctrine that matters, right? It's the doctrine that matters. And it says here, whose end shall be according to their works. They can live the life. They can portray the life. But one day when they stand before God, it will be based upon the truth of Scripture, not based upon the righteousness of their life because they were not righteous. 2 Peter 3.16 warns about those that rest the Scriptures. That, that word is W-R-E-S-T. That is a root word of wrestle, right? And when you wrestle, what do you do? Right? I got Eric up here in a headlock. I'm trying to get him to go where I want him to go. I'm resting him, right? And it says here that they take the scripture and they rest it to what they want it to say. And in doing so, they take themselves to damnation, right? And that's the problem. We have a lot of people out there that teach scripture, but they don't back it up. They'll take one little scripture and then they'll give you this long message based upon this little chunk. And they throw in all these idioms and all this stuff that they want over their own deal. And then we're not looking for what man has to say. We're looking what the Bible says. Though God always desires restoration, he will not compromise his judgments to do so. We all stand accountable to God. Verse 19, whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. This is talking about bestiality. They go, oh my goodness, who in the world would possibly do that? 
Unfortunately, the Can in Canaan and in Mesopotamia, this was a common practice. Based upon the pagan beliefs that they had, they worshiped animals, and they would actually have, your imagination, fill in whatever you want to fill in there, with animals, right? And guess what? God did not tolerate it. Those people were to be put to death. It is contrary to God's will. He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord, the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Idolatry. This was the biggest stumbling block for the Israelites. They struggled with it forever, and they still to this day struggle with idolatry. Now, they were to be, at this point in time, you've got to realize this is a, the pagans, pagan belief is what's, that's what the whole planet's covered with pagan belief. And this is an opportunity for a monotheistic God, one God, worship of one God. This is never anywhere else in the world, and that's what God's asking of them. And they're looking at every, all their neighbors around them. Everything they've experienced has been polytheistic, all a bunch of different gods. And he's expecting them to make this change. Notice the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me, and not worship idols. They're both focused on the same thing. Don't put anything above me, right? Only because God hates it, but because God is knows that people are drawn to it, and he knows the destructive aspect of it. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8 says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they, they, speak they through their throats. They that make them are like unto them. Notice that verse, that what he says. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. These things are dead. They have no life. They have an appearance of life, but they are not alive. And what he's saying is those that worship these are dead, spiritually dead. They are on their way to damnation. They are on their way to death because they're putting their faith in an object and not in God themselves. They are in need of spiritual life. They're in need of what's called, the Bible uses the word quickening. That means spiritual life. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace are saved, and hath raised us up together and made, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come we might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is not the person that you are, it is the gift of God, not of works, right? There's all these religions out there that teach works. It's Jesus and works. It's Jesus and baptism. It's Jesus and whatever else. Any work you relate to takes away from Christ. It is faith and faith alone. For by grace you save through faith. Faith means 100%. I can't have 99% faith in you, right? I can't say, hey, Eric, man, I trust you 99%. When I give him my truck keys, am I like, ah, I'm not worried about it. I'm like, ah, 1%. So I doubt him, don't I? If you have Jesus and anything else, you don't have Jesus. It's him and him alone. And in verse number 10, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, we see why it is we are here. It's not about us. It's about him to serve God, not because we have to, but because we get to. My goodness, what an amazing gift God gives us. We are undeserving. We're idolatrous. We're unfaithful. We're all the things we should not be. That's humanity. Especially now, we live in a Laodicean church era. This is where we're so filled with self, man. We're lovers of our own selves. 
We desire pleasure rather than God. And we live in this culture that feeds that kind of thinking. And he's saying, you know what? Be careful. Be careful. You're unfaithful. All these things that we've got going on in our lives. Yet, with all that, God still loves us. God still is willing to take us as unworthy as we are and use us for his glory. We don't deserve it, but man, I'm thankful that he gives it to us. Amen. You and I have to be careful because idols, guess what? They can be cars, jobs, houses, people, relationships, money, fame, whatever it is. But guess what? They all lead to. They all lead to death. The same path. Anything that takes priority over God leads to death because it is in opposition to God. And we hear that and we go, what, is it? what do you mean leads to death? Let's imagine this. Let's imagine that as the pastor of this church, I decide, you know what? My focus is going to be building this church. That's going to be my focus. And I become so mono-focused on that that that's what I pray about all the time. And I work, all my efforts are towards that end. I'm working to build the church, build the church, build the church, build the church, build the church. And what happens over a period of time is my prayer life starts to suffer. I'm not compassionate like I was before. I'm not bearing the burdens of my brothers and sisters. I'm focused upon what it is I'm trying to accomplish, which is build the church. And in my mind, am I thinking it's a godly thing? Yeah. Am I doing the right thing? As far as I'm concerned, sure, I'm doing the right thing. But I'm no longer being a witness. The people that need me outside of the church, I'm not spending time with them. The people that need Christ, I don't take the time to talk to them because I'm so focused on accomplishing my goal that I've lost sight of what God would have me to do. And this person who was lost, who needed Christ because my focus is wrong, ends up dying and go to hell. And what happens is all of it. I'm thinking I'm doing the right thing, but in reality what's happened is I've made the church an idol. And in serving that, I've taken my eyes off of God. That's the danger. When it says it's all pointing to death, because ultimately it is. It draws us away from him, away from him. This life has plenty to offer that can be enticing and provide temporary earthly pleasure for a time, but those things will never, ever provide contentment. We're here to do the will of God, right? And guess what? Anything outside of that is wrong. It's wrong. God's heart for the less fortunate, verse 21. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's talking about having compassion for those that are strangers in the land. They don't have any support. They're, they're on their own. Verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child, right? These would be considered defenseless. They don't have a man in their life to protect them in this society. If, check this out, if thou afflict them in any wise, I don't care how it is, you afflict them in any wise, and they cry out, and, and, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. Remember the Israelites? When they were under bondage, and the Bible, God said, I heard their cry, right? He hears their cry of the oppressed. Verse 24, and my wrath shall wax hot. That means I'm going to be ticked off. And I will, check this out, I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall be widows, and your children shall be fatherless. Any abuse of them is going to forfeit your life. God cares about the victims. He cares about those that are weak. He defends those who cannot defend themselves and provides for the needy. God sees the affliction of those who are truly in need and will provide for them. Think about this. We think about those people in Africa. We know they are truly in need. That's, they're not putting on. They're not out on the, you know, I saw some YouTube video. This woman, somebody confronted her, and she's like parking her car at Wendy's, and then she's going and staying out by the street with this, you know, need work for food, da da da, da all this stuff listed. You know, she's pretending that she's homeless, and then she's going back and getting to a, you know, an Acura and driving away. These people in, in, in Malawi, guess what? They have nothing. They have nothing. God knows the need. 
So when we decided to do the container, guess what God did? He provided the need, right? It wasn't like we had it. We, gosh, at the end of the time when we sent that thing, we had way more. We took a truckload of stuff to Goodwill because we had way more than we could possibly send them. God meets the needs. Someone's in need, guess what? He's going to take care of them because he has a heart for them, a heart for the victims, a heart for the needy. Deuteronomy, check this out. This is very cool. Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22. It says, verse number 19, When thou cuttest down thine, thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field. So let's go, you're going through and you're cutting down your corn, right? And you're collecting it up. Well, what happens? You end up leaving some of it back on the ground. Thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. This is the purpose of the church. This is why God created it. This is why our faithful giving is important because we then give to the work of the Lord. Verse number 20, when thou beatest thine olive tree, okay? Talking about what, what would happen is the olives, right? They're on the tree and they would take a, a, like a, almost like a rake and they would pound the trees. And they would smack it. And if they were ripe, all the olives would fall off the tree, right? And it says here, when thou beatest thine, it says, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. Once you've done it once, when the time comes and they're ripe, go through and smack them. And whatever falls, you get it. And it says what here? Um, and not glean afterward, it shall be for the strangers, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the strangers, for the fatherless, and for the widows. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. Don't forget where you've come from, my friend. You, at one point in time, were these people. You were the stranger. You were the fatherless. You were the widow. You were the one that, was, that had nothing and had no support. And instead of you getting haughty and thinking that you're something special, have a heart of compassion to realize that there are people that are like you. Right? That's the whole thing. You know? But therefore, the grace of God go I, man. We've got to put ourselves in that understanding. It's like, look, man, we look at somebody who doesn't, he's less fortunate than us. By the grace of God, that's not us. By the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And we sit up sometimes in this pious, I deserve, I deserve. Man, we don't deserve jack. Amen. Nothing. What do I deserve? I deserve hell. I don't deserve the love of God. I don't deserve the, the patience of God. I don't understand, deserve the forgiveness of God at all. Yet he offers it, right? And that's what he's saying. He's like, have the heart that I have. Love people. Have compassion upon those less fortunate. 1 John three seventeen, as we talked about before, but whoso hath this world's good, God has provided for you. And seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion. You say, look, you know what? Shutteth up. That means I have compassion, but I choose not to act. I feel compelled to do this, but I'm not going to because I'm going to think about myself. That's a person that feels compelled to help and says, you know what? But I'm not going to. They're going to talk themselves out. How dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed, and in truth, let's live what we believe. Our hearts should be compassionate, just like his is. Verse 25, if thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usury, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. When it talks about usury, it's talking about interest. It's like you're not going to loan this money to this poor person with the thing that you're going to be taking advantage of them. I want you to loan this money out of the kindness of your heart and allow them to pay back whenever they can. Work with them. This is not a matter of you profiting. This is a matter of you being a blessing to someone else. Verse number 26. If thou, you guys are doing so good. We're going a lot of scripture and y'all are doing awesome. You're staying with me. Hardly any of y'all are asleep, which is fantastic. I love it. <laughs> 
if thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, he says, look, you promise you're going to borrow it, right? And he says, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that sun goeth down. He says, look, you promise I'm going to loan you my coat, and you're going to promise you're going to bring it back to me. Well, guess what? You need to do that because you know you're going to borrow their coat. Why is it important that they get their coat back? Check this out, verse number 27. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? At this time, these guys were carrying everything they had. They didn't have blankets. They didn't have pillows. They didn't have bedrolls. What they would do is they would take the clothing they had on their bodies and they would wrap themselves up and they would sleep on the ground. So if you've got his coat, guess what? He's going to be laying there at night shivering because you were too lazy to bring it back. So God's saying, look, be, and he says here, and it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me and I will hear for I am gracious. God says, look, you're going to be accountable to me. Verse number 28, thou shalt not revile the gods. We talked about last week the, the word Elohim. That word Elohim is, is plural for gods. And that Elohim, when we see that word judge, that when you see gods, that's actually referring to the judges. He says, he says right there, he says, um, yeah, revile not the gods, revile not the judges that are above you, nor curse the ruler of thy people. He says, don't curse Moses, right? You need to realize that God put people in authority for a reason. Honor those in authority over us because guess who put them there? God did. Romans 13, verses 1 through 2. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there's no power but of God, the powers that the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resisteth shall receive to themselves damnation. Right? In honoring the authority of the people that are above us, guess what? We honor God because he placed them in that position. Does that mean they're all good people? No. Does that mean they're always going to do a good job? No. Is it sometimes they're going to do things that are wrong? Yes. But you know what? I'm going to give you an example. I worked at a previous church, and in that previous church, we'd had a pastor for a long period of time. I was called to, called to preach there, everything, and God did a great work in my life. And he had his own issues and problems, but you know what? It was a situation where it kind of fed my ego. They were like, man, Dave, you're great, you're great, you're great, you're great. And I'm like, yeah, okay, great, I'm great. But what happened was it started changing the way that I was serving. Initially, I was like, man, just serve God. But what happened is I started serving, serving man. And I started serving for the purpose of getting a little bit of, you know, attaboy, you know? Have we all fallen prey to that before? Amen. Yeah, we start doing things for, for this accolade. And what happened was we had another pastor that came in. I, I, personally, I mean, he had his own issues and stuff like that. But what was interesting is he had no reverence for me whatsoever, right? So I went from like, dun da da to like, hmm, who are you, right? And if your ego's built up a little bit because you think you're something important, and all of a sudden somebody's like, they won't even talk to you, want me just... That's hard, right? Who's ever felt that before? You know, you're like, man, you know what? I want to be, hey, appreciate what I'm doing, man. How about a little attaboy just once in a while? Recognize what I'm doing. I'm coming in early and I'm staying late. I'm the one that's doing this. I'm the, me, 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 right? Me, 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 me. Amen. All right? And I was so wrapped up in me that for about a year, I'm like this all the time. I'm going to come even an hour even earlier to make sure you got something to say that's positive. I'm going to show you. I'm going to pick up everything in the parking lot. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Right? I'm so worked and focused on this person, I've lost sight of what it is I'm supposed to be doing. And what happened was over time, God humbled me. And over that, there was about six months, man, where I searched my heart and searched my heart and searched my heart, and I poured my heart in this book. And then scripture, man, it kept showing me, who are you, David? Why do you do what you do? You don't deserve anything. The fact that I have called you to preach, the fact that I've called you into ministry, I've given you a blessing, and you're blowing it, you idiot. And I'm telling you, unless you can get humble before God and get honest with yourself and look in the mirror and realize who you really are, 
Man, it's hard to get humbled because what happens, we sell ourselves on who we think we are. We try to portray ourselves as something that we're not. God knows who we are. He knows what we are. And he knew who I was. And he addressed it with me through his scripture, man, and it brought me down and it humbled my heart and allowed me to realize what I was doing and I was blessed to get to do whatever I was able to do. And I'm telling you what, that's the thing. That man, do I think he's a good guy? Do I think he's, no, I don't don't want a great athlete, but you know what? God used him in my life. Good or bad, God uses them, man. They're tools to shape us. And we want everything to go well, but it's not always about that. So many times it's the hard stuff that shapes us. And we have to embrace it. What I talk about all the time, right? I, I, I glory in my tribulations that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that rolls off the tongue easy. But let me tell you, living it is hard. But buddy, if you'll do it, God will change you. And he'll make you more of who you're supposed to be. It's just awesome. I love God. Anyway, whew, I get it back on track. I wasn't even, it's not in our message, but it is today. Anyway, verse number 31. Uh, and this is, this is interesting. No, 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 verse 29. And thou shalt, shalt, thou shalt not lay to offer the first of thy ripe, of, of thy ripe fruits or of thy liquors and the firstborn uh, of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. So look, tithes and offerings, they should come to me first. Likewise shalt thou do, un, do with thine oxen and with thine sheep. Seven days it shall be with his dam. On the eighth day thou shalt give it to me. So look, you're, you're going to have to wean it after eight days. You're going to wean it, dedicate it to the Lord's use. We're always to give God our very best, right? God deserves our best. That should be our heart. Give him the best we can. Verse 31, and you shall be holy unto men. You should be be holy men unto me. Neither shall you eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in the field. You shall cast it to the dogs. That seems like you wouldn't really have to necessarily tell people that. I don't think any of us are going to drive by the road and see a possum on the side of the road. Dang, man. Taking that home. Honey, you got a pot? Let's boil this bad boy up, right? We're not going to boil this stiff-tailed possum in a pot and eat it, right? That seems like you wouldn't have to explain that. But these guys are not the smartest bunch, right? They've come out of a culture. They don't know what's going on. And God's trying to protect them from themselves because they're not making the best decisions all the time. They're rebellious by nature. So we look at that aspect of eating roadkill. We wouldn't do that. God's warning them not to do that. But we look at this and God is protecting them from unwise decisions, but making sure that those wrong, those who are wronged also are restored. God is a God of the underdog. That's what we see in the scriptures. He works for those that are less fortunate. And I thought about this as the Jews. The Jews. The Jews today, in our world today, they represent 2% of the world's population. 2% of the world's population. Yet they continue to, make, continue to make major impacts on the world economically, technologically, culturally, and medically. Throughout history, they have been repeatedly marked for destruction. I mean, specifically marked for destruction. And I mean, we look about, think about back within the book of Esther, we look in the, 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 the Jews during, the, during World War II, but there's been instance after instance after instance of persecution. Yet they have survived. And guess what? They have flourished. They flourished. And what we've seen in the Jewish people is God's heart for mercy and his desire for restoration as he calls them to himself. Because guess what? Through all this time, they're rebellious. The Jews today, guess what? They don't recognize Jesus Christ as Savior. They are still rebellious to this day. Deuteronomy 4, verses 27 through 31 says this, And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. He says, as a result of your disobedience, you're going to be scattered across the world. You're going to lose your country. And there shall be, and, they, and ye shall serve uh, and you shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. You will serve death instead of life. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, and thou shalt, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul, 
When thou art in tribulation, when you're in hard times and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou return, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shalt be obedient unto his voice, verse 31, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, and he swear unto them. They remained, check this out, almost 2,000 years they were scattered. 2,000 years. The United States is what? How old are we? Somebody smart. You guys are in school. You should be like, boom, knock that right out. Over 200 years old, right? 200 years old. We're like, man, 200 years is a long time. 2,000 years these people were scattered among the world, right? Amazingly. Check this out. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. This prophecy was given. Therefore say, that, therefore say, thus saith the Lord, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Okay? 2,000 years are scattered around the planet in all kinds of different cultures, being hunted and persecuted during those cultures the whole time. And 2,000 years later, in 1948, the impossible, the unthinkable, the unprecedented happened as Israel became a nation in 1948. Guys, this is unbelievable. This is the hand of God. Amen. There is no other people group, no other people group that's ever been dispersed like that throughout human history that even saved their language or their culture, their beliefs. They saved nothing. Those things are gone. You're talking about dead languages, right? There's a bunch of them. There's cultures that have been utterly lost, and there's no record of them whatsoever. This tiny little group of people scattered around the planet, and God had a promise back in Ezekiel that I will gather them together. And the Israelites, guess what? Today, going strong. And they're still gathering Jews from around the world, and they're gathering back to that place. Amen. And even this week, Iran said, you know what? We now have the technology to utterly destroy Israel. They're still being persecuted. They're still being hunted, yet they're going strong in the midst of a culture. This is unbelievable, and it's the hand of God for the underdog. The hand of God of restoration for his people. Man, Israelites are, guess what? They're a picture of us. As we read through God's dealings with them, we see his long-suffering, we see his mercy, we see his kindness, we see his forgiveness, we see always working towards restoration. Today we've seen God's heart towards to restore and we've seen it displayed in these precepts and we've seen this, the fact that God is, a, is, a, is an underdog. He wants to go for the underdog, for the victim. With this understanding, we should be able to rest assured that he's on our side, right? God's on our side, but guess what? He will defend us. And guess what he'll also do? He'll provide our needs through his perfect plan for our lives. As God's children, we either live in fear of what the future holds or we face it with confidence, right? Most people live in fear of tomorrow. God says, that's not it. See, our God is not only in control, but he loves us. Guess what? He takes care of us. He knows your need before you even know it yourself. And he's already made provision for you. God cares for us. As God's children, we can live in fear. We can live in faith. If you feel sad and alone, if you've suffered loss, if you feel broken and weary, or maybe you just lost hope. Guess what? Perhaps it's because you're like the Israelites, living in rebellion, right? Rebellion to God. But let me ask you this, living in rebellion to God, how's that working out for you? It doesn't. 
it ends up putting us right in these places of being sad, alone, suffered, suffering loss, weary, and broken, and without hope. Second Corinthians, or Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Let me assure you that not only does God care about you, more than you can even possibly imagine, that's the thing that's so crazy. We think about, we're on, man, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable. Man, you don't understand how much he loves you. <laughs> with all your problems, he loves you and he made you specifically. He created your DNA and wove it together with your name and he created you because he loves you just as you are. Don't get your value from this world. Get it from God because he loves you, man. He loves you. But let me tell you, no matter what our issue, no matter what our pain, no matter what our loss, it doesn't matter because God is ready to restore us. He's here for us. The question is, will we humble ourselves and come to him? Will we? Because you know what? If we do, humble ourselves and come to him, guess what we get to experience? His heart of restoration. He wants to take us in our broken state and reassemble us into something that can be used for his glory. It's why we're here. And we lose sight of it because the world tells us differently. But the more we learn to surrender to his will, the more we'll see it working in our lives and we'll feel the love of God, the patience, the contentment, and the joy. It's available to us, but we have to humble ourselves to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today, and we thank you for the message you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for the precepts and these laws, God. Even though they're sometimes a little difficult to go through, there are some beautiful, beautiful lessons in them showing us a picture of your heart, God. Thank you for the heart of restoration that you have for your people, Lord. Thank you for the fact that you love those that are victimized, God, and you go above and beyond the call of duty, not only to restore them, God, but also to provide for them and, Lord, defend them. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done in our hearts today and pray that you'll help us, Lord, to recognize those, those bowels of compassion that are within us. Help us to have hearts for other people. Help us to be people of restoration. And if, God, we're broken, if we're here today and you know what we say, look, I'm that person. When you described all those traits of, of sadness, brokenness, losing hope, I'm that person. God is waiting on us. Restoration is literally just a prayer away. It's submission away. If we'll open our hearts to him, he will fill the void that we experience in this life. Because it's not about this life. It's about him. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, pastor, I don't know that I'm a child of God. I'm not even sure necessarily what that means. I believe in God. I mean, I, I've been in church my whole life. If you asked me if I was a Christian, I'd say, I mean, I've been a Christian my whole life. But let me tell you this, the Bible tells us that you must be born again. Meaning there is a moment in time when you go from who you were, a lost person, to being a child of God. And there is a change in us. The Bible says we become a new creature. If our salvation is a prayer that we remember saying, but there was no change in our life, there's a really good chance that you are not saved. You made a religious choice, but you did not receive Christ. He loves you. He died for you. He wants to restore the relationship that was broken from our sin. And he's ready. He's already paid the price on the cross. If you're online, if you're in the overflow, wherever you are, it's nothing magic. It's not a magic prayer. It's not a ceremony. It's nothing more than a heart that has a desire to be restored to God, a broken heart that wants to know Jesus. He loves you. He died on the cross for your sins and he's ready to receive you exactly as you are, right where you sit. And I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray. It's not the words of the prayers I said. It's the intention of your heart. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a matter of faith. If you'll ask him into your heart by faith, he will become your Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in your heart and mind. It doesn't have to be out loud. It's between you and God. And if you pray this prayer and you're sincere and you truly mean it, God will save your soul. Lord, I thank you for today. Thank you for the message you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us right now. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for all that I've done wrong. I know that it separates me from you and I'm sorry. I'm asking you to forgive me. I repent of my sin. I turn from it and I trust you to be my Savior. You died on the cross. You were buried and you rose on the third day, proving you were God. I'm asking you to come into my heart to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for loving me. I will see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And still bowed, eyes still closed. If you're here today and you